0: You are listening to CSN International, your home for the latest praise and worship music and solid Bible teaching. In just a moment, we're going to join a study from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. But first, I'd like to invite you to come out and join us in person. We're located in Twin Falls, Idaho, and have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and Sunday and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Visit theriverchristianfellowship.com and click on the map for directions or to schedule a visit. We're glad you're tuned in and hope you enjoy today's verse by verse study recorded live during one of our Wednesday or Sunday services. Now let's join the teaching already underway. Good evening. Uh, hi.
1: The human beings were created in God's image and likeness. For the purpose of worship. Now I'll back this up because you see everybody worships something or someone. You don't have to be a Christian to worship something. You don't have to be religious to worship something. You just have to be a human to worship something. Whatever is central in your life, whatever your life revolves around, is who or what you worship. Generally, if you're not worshiping God, you worship yourself in some form. Whether it's through the pursuit of maybe money, maybe sex, maybe happiness, maybe power. In some way, it's centered around yourself for you to get what you want. And so you worship yourself. You fulfill your own needs. You are the top thing in your life. And everybody worships something or someone. And this also plays out. Every sort of thing we have as Christians to describe our worship of God is also how non-Christians or even non-religious people worship themselves. It all plays out like this. I've was, i worshipped myself longer than I've worshipped God. I've worshipped God like three years. I worshipped myself, math, like 25 years then, 26 years. So I, I spent a lot more time doing that. But it all works out the same way. See, as Christians, we believe in the idea of justification. And for Christians, this means God is the center of our life as Christians, he is who our life revolves around. And justification is a legal term, meaning that God has declared you innocent of your sins, innocent of the penalty of your sins, through the blood of Jesus. But, whether if you're not a Christian, or if you're another religion, or even non-religious, there's some way everyone tries to justify themselves. And that's how people are able to tell themselves, I'm a good person, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. And, and it works by, you set your own standard of righteousness, which conveniently you get to decide if you meet it, which you probably do, and then you can declare yourself righteous and justified because I do enough good things, I help people, nobody really sees how bad I am. So that's the definition of self-righteousness, and we justify ourselves by setting our own level of what makes us feel like a good person. There's also the idea of devotion. As Christians, we devote our lives to Jesus because He is center of our lives. Whereas a non-Christian or even a non-religious person Devote themselves to something, usually some sort of cause. Sometimes it's themselves, sometimes it's save the whales, uh, end abortion, keep abortion, you know, whatever sort of cause. And this is related to justification, because if you commit yourself to some cause, if you devote yourself good enough, then you can feel good enough about yourself that you're making a difference in the world and thus feel justified. There's also salvation. You see, as Christians, we believe we're saved by grace because of Jesus. And that's how we, we receive salvation. Whereas even a non-Christian or a non-religious person has some idea of salvation. It may not be heaven in the sense we think, but there's a functional heaven that has a functional Savior that'll help get us there. For example, maybe the idea of heaven is a perfect body, and the way you'll get there is working out and that sort of thing, dieting, that's a false idol. So there's some sort of idea that would be heaven on earth for you and you pursue that and whatever will help you get there. And it all goes around to this idea of self-righteousness, self-justification, setting your own standard for what's good enough and then doing whatever you decide to meet it. So this proves again that we are all made to worship because we're either going to worship the God of the Bible or we're going to worship ourselves in some fashion. Either one of those is going to be at the top of your life. So this idea is what makes Jesus the stumbling stone. The Bible, what we'll read tonight, calls Jesus repeatedly a stone of stumbling. I think that's a strange thing to call Jesus from the Bible. You'd think that's maybe what a non-Christian would call Jesus, a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. We'll see today, but this is why people stumble at Jesus, because... We set our own level of righteousness, decide that we can meet it by doing enough good things, having our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. And so when we hear there's Jesus who pays the price for your sins because you cannot, people stumble, people trip. I don't want that. I want to think I can justify myself. I want to call myself righteous. I don't need any help. I'm a pretty good person. So people stumble over Jesus. And he's always a stumbling stone. And the reason why is because that's what we do when people have sinned against us. Right? When someone sins against us, they have to earn forgiveness. They have to do enough good things for you to justify them. So we feel like that's how it should be with God. And when God says, no, there's nothing you can do to earn that, there's no way you can justify yourself, you only need Jesus, people trip over Him, people stumble, and continue to pursue self-righteous justification. And we're so conditioned, now here's the problem, that we're so conditioned by our sinful nature to justify ourselves, that when God tells us not to justify ourselves, but that He will justify you, we don't know how to respond. Again, we stumble over the stumbling stone that is Jesus. That trips us up. We don't want that. We want to become self-righteous. So that's the problem we're going to look at tonight in Romans, the end of Romans 9 and then all of Romans 10. So Romans, just the the context of it is helpful to understand that Romans is an essay on salvation written by Paul the Apostle through inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church in Rome. And it lays out very systematically what is salvation and what it entails, maybe better than any other book in the Bible. It's not a complete picture, but it very systematically lays it out. Because we have in the beginning of Romans the thing that answers why we need salvation, and that's that we are all under condemnation. We're all sinners by nature and choice and separated from God. So the beginning of Romans establishes that. It's pretty intense. And then after that, after explaining why we need salvation, Paul writes in chapters 4 and 5 how God achieves that. By his son Jesus being, being the price for our sin, so God is able to justify us. That means legally he declares us innocent of all sin. It's a legal term. Chapter 6 through 8 of Romans explains what happens after that. After God justifies you, it's called sanctification. And that's how we walk with Jesus in pursuing holiness, becoming dead to sin and dead to the law, and pursuing holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit. So now we find ourselves in the fourth major section of Romans, which is about election. The idea of election. And this answers the question of who will be saved. Who will be saved? And last week we, we dug into Romans 9, which is very controversial, because that says who is saved is up to God's sovereign mercy. God decides who is saved. He picks some people. He does not pick other people. And we get very offended by this, and we don't think God should be doing that. We think we can judge. But that's what the Bible says, that God picks some people. He does not pick other people. At the same time, the what we're going to look at tonight is the other side of that that there is human responsibility in salvation. You see, the Bible teaches both divine sovereignty, that God is above all, God doesn't answer to anybody and He does what He wants, but also human responsibility, that we are still responsible for our sin and we're still responsible for what happens. The Bible teaches this throughout. For example, like with Judas, we see it was part of God's plan, part of divine sovereignty that someone betrays the messiah but judas is still responsible we don't fully understand these two things it's kind of like the trinity i don't think we'll fully understand this until heaven that god is sovereign yet humans are responsible but i like how the preacher uh, charles spurgeon explains this someone asked him to reconcile these two ideas that god is sovereign yet we're responsible and he said there's no need to reconcile friends Because they work together. God is sovereign and we are responsible. So tonight we're looking at the human side of salvation. Responding to the gospel. That God calls people, God elects people, but also we respond to Him, respond to the gospel message. Like I said, the problem is we want to justify ourselves. We want to think we are good enough to do it on our own. And the answer, again, we'll see Romans 10 and the end of Romans 9, is that Jesus is the only way to salvation, so we need to stop trusting in ourselves. Because Paul is primarily writing to the Jewish people in this section of Romans, who knew the law and were trying to earn their salvation, and he's saying they never found it. So let's explore the problem a little more detail. Dig into Romans, starting at uh, verse 30 of chapter 9. Paul writes out the problem. The problem here again is works righteousness. Thinking we can earn our salvation by being good enough, by doing enough good things. As long as our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, then we earn it. That's the idea here. And the first part of this problem, verses 30 through 33, will tell us that being religious and being righteous are not the same thing. So, religion is not, or righteousness is not religion. Verses 30 through 33. What shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So here again, Paul is saying the Israelites versus the Jews where the Israelite or versus the Gentiles the Israelites are trying to pursue righteousness by works of the law they're trying to earn their salvation because God had revealed to them their law you know at Mount Sinai with Moses the ten commandments plus 600 some other commandments where God has said here is what is right here is what is wrong here is what is sinful and here is what is not that's the law and generally the Israelites got it all wrong that they thought the law would bring salvation, where the point of the law is to show us we need salvation because we can't keep it, that we fail at keeping the law. So Paul is saying here that people who were pursuing righteousness, trying to be righteous, ended up not attaining it. But the ones who weren't even looking for it, the Gentiles, us, the non-Jews, were not pursuing righteousness on their own and yet have attained it. Because the problem is works righteousness. So this we could say... We'll see later tonight how we are to believe in our heart, Jesus. This is the idea that we can believe just in our head. And this is very common in our culture. This: As long as I believe in my head, there's a God. As long as I believe in my head, there's even a guy named Jesus. That I'm not against it. That people call that salvation. But salvation is not in the head. Salvation is in the heart. And we have the majority of America classified as nominal Christians. I think it's estimated two-thirds of American adults are Christians in name only, meaning they believe in their head that just because they're not against the idea of God, that that means salvation. But again, salvation, we'll see, starts in the heart, not in the head, and the heart will influence the head. But salvation is not just something in your head. Religion does not equal righteousness. In pursuing righteousness on our own, we will never attain it because it says, like in verse 32, because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. See, we are not good enough to attain our own righteousness. We are not good enough to keep the law because again, God's revelation of what's right and wrong is for the only purpose of being our tutor to bring us to Christ, to show us that we need a Savior, that we're unable to attain it by works of following the law. So we stumble over Jesus, like it says, because we think we don't need him, that God has put in Zion a stumbling stone, which is Jesus. Because we want to attain our own righteousness. We want to earn it. But Jesus says, you can't earn it. I died for you. And the only way to receive salvation, the only way to be reconciled to God, to be removed of our separation and condemnation, is by Jesus. But again, that's a stumbling stone. People here that don't like it. Additionally, though, it says that Jesus is the rock of offense because Jesus is offensive. This is offensive, what I'm talking about, especially non-Christians. The gospel, well, really only non-Christians, I should say. The gospel is offensive. Jesus is offensive. He is a rock of, of, of offense. He offends people because Jesus says, or even the idea of Jesus says that no one is good enough. No one can earn their salvation. No one can follow the law good enough that they earn their salvation. That's offensive. Because again, our sinful nature wants to earn it ourselves. It's offensive because there's no neutral. I think if we could say, you know, if you're really bad, you go to hell. That's not so offensive. But what the Bible says is that everyone goes to hell except those who are forgiven by Jesus. That's offensive. That's offensive. Because to be neutral is to be condemned. To be neutral, so to speak, is to stay separated from God. That's offensive. Jesus is a rock of offense. It's also offensive because I think this shows the climate of our culture. Because Jesus says he will send the Holy Spirit to those who he's forgiven. And the Holy Spirit changes people. Culturally, we do not like the idea that we can be changed. Because the thing of today is, Embrace your flaws. Your flaws make you who you are. It's your sins that really define you. So that's the idea of the culture that what's evil is called good and what's good is called evil and our sin we commit and the evil we put into this world is actually called a virtue in our culture. No one can change me. I am who I am and if you don't like me that way, it's your problem. And we call this tolerance. But the Bible says, the Gospel says, that you will change. You'll not just be a better old version of yourself with managed behaviors, you'll be changed. And our culture is very skeptical about change. Our culture doesn't like us to say you need change. You need to be a new person, not a better old person. So it's very offensive. If People are offended by Jesus because of all these things. Because if we could say there's Jesus, but you can also earn it. See, it's not offensive then. It's that there's only Jesus that Jesus is the only way to the Father, that He is the way, the truth, and the life. That's what's offensive, because it's exclusive, and because we cannot earn it. Now Christians, notice what's offensive here. It's it's Jesus. It's the gospel. It's not us. We are not to be the rock of offense. We are not to offend people, except by maybe proclaiming the message. We're not called to offend others or to, you know, throw fits when we don't get our way and say the culture should be operating this way. The offensiveness comes from the gospel, from Jesus, not because of us judging people or pointing fingers or whatever they'll be judged by God. They were to proclaim the message. That's the offense, not the judgment. So there's the first part of the problem of works righteousness. Religion is not the same as righteousness, trying to follow Rules to please God is not the same as being righteous. Only Jesus provides righteousness. The second part of the problem is that self-righteousness makes us ignorant of God's righteousness. When we feel self-righteous, we don't care about God's righteousness because we feel pretty good about our own righteousness. So uh, chapter 10, verses 1-4. through Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So when we feel self-righteous, we don't look at God's righteousness. And where the last point sort of was belief in our head, just thinking, I believe there's a God out there and that's good enough, This corresponds to belief in our hands that we can do good enough work. If we have enough zeal and enthusiasm, then God will forgive us. That's what it says right here. And that's not how it works. Again, salvation is in the heart and it influences the head and the hands, but you cannot earn your salvation by being good enough. As it says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. That's outward religious enthusiasm. Being super excited, showing up to church three times a week, being part of all the Bible studies, doing all the right things, talking the talk, maybe not really walking the walk, but knowing how to fit in in the church and being part of the culture. That's a zeal for God. There's nothing wrong with that necessarily. But he says they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Meaning not according to the way God has revealed salvation to us. They have a zeal for God, but not for God's righteousness, not for the righteousness that comes through Jesus, but a zeal for God of our own righteousness, of working hard enough to prove ourselves to God. And that's not God's will or revelation for salvation. You don't earn your salvation by doing enough good things. Because then we feel self-righteous. And again, self-righteousness will blind us to God's righteousness. Because what happens is, it says in verse 3, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Culturally, this, this is us. We feel really good about ourselves. America has a very high self-esteem. Even though we're very mediocre in most areas, we're the number one in self-esteem. We really believe in ourselves. We think we are, very, we are great people. We're self-righteous. And when we think we are self-righteous, as it says, we don't submit to the righteousness of God because we think we have it figured out. We think we're doing enough good. We're earning our salvation. So we don't need God's righteousness. I'm good enough to do it. It says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So this is saying that, again, the law is God's revelation of what's right and wrong, what's sinful and not sinful, The end of that, what that points to is not salvation on its own, but it points to Jesus. Jesus is the end of the law. As long as you find Jesus, you fulfilled the law because the whole purpose of the law, the whole purpose of right and wrong is to show us we are wrong and we need salvation. We need God to forgive us freely because we cannot earn it. So Jesus is the end of the law. He also fulfills the law because he never broke it. He is the only one who never broke it. He didn't have a sinful nature, although he was fully human. He never sinned. He lived by the power of the Holy Spirit and fully God, but fully man, and He never sinned, and He fulfills the law. And He is, when we look at what's right and wrong, what should be at the end of that is Jesus. Because that's the only thing, the only way of salvation. When we can see that there is no, we cannot attain perfection on our own. We cannot earn it with our hands, so to speak. So Jesus is the end of the law. When we see Jesus, we fulfilled the purpose of, of right and wrong. As far as salvation, we should still put our sin to death and all that. But as far as salvation is concerned, we don't earn it by works of the law. But again, sort of sum up here, again, the problem, we want to save ourselves because that makes sense to us. That's how people are justified in our sight is by earning it. But we think too much of us and too little of God so we don't seek God's righteousness without the power of the Holy Spirit to turn us to Him. It's like it says early in Romans, no one seeks after God. The Holy Spirit turns our heart to God. Now God has a different plan. This will be our plan. If we were God, it would be people earn it. We pick the people who have done mostly good things. But God had a different plan. The only thing that would work, because no one is good enough to earn salvation. And God's plan is salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. That grace is God's unmerited favor on your life. That you do not deserve God's favor, but he loves his creation and he loves his children. So God himself comes to the earth to pay the price for sin because that is the only way to salvation because we cannot earn it. So that's what Paul is writing about next. Because he said, again, we want to earn it so we stumble over Jesus and we're offended about it. So we try to be just religiously enthusiastic, but that's not good enough. So now saved by grace. First verses 5 through 7, it says, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Before we get deeper into this, this is the first part of salvation by grace by God's unmerited favor because of the work of Jesus. He's saying what I've been saying, that we can't attain righteousness on on our own because the Bible all along it says, the man who does these things shall live by them. It's not hearers of the law who will be justified, it's doers. And again, the whole point of the law is to show us that we can't do it. To say that, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. There's nothing we can do to build that ladder to heaven that we can earn God's favor. Do not say who will descend into the abyss to bring Christ up from the dead. That's religion. Religion is a man-made system where we try to reach God by saying the magic words, doing the rituals, doing all those things where we try to reach God. But what the gospel says is God has reached us. And salvation is not far. It's not distant. We don't have to ascend to heaven to reach it we don't have to descend to the abyss to reach it paul says here that salvation is very near to us verses 8 through 10 but what does it say the word is near you in your mouth in your mouth and in your heart that is the word of faith which we preach that if you confess with your mouth the lord jesus and believe in your heart that god has raised him from the dead you will be saved for with the heart one believes unto righteousness And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. He's saying salvation is not distant. It's not we have to be perfect. Salvation is as close as our heart and as our mouth. Because with our mouth, we confess that Jesus is Lord. And in our heart, we believe that God has raised Him from the dead. So salvation starts in the heart, not in our head and not in our hands. Our heart influences those things. It's just like in a marriage relationship. With your, there's a way you could be in a relationship with your spouse where you only love your spouse, not in your heart, but in your head. You just say, you know, I love my wife, but you don't really do anything to show it. You don't feel it in your heart. That's not really true love. You could say, I love my, my wife or my husband with things that I do. I won't say with my hands. That could get dirty. You know, I, we love our spouse with things that we do, but not feel it in our heart, not think it in our head, just checking off boxes to say, I've done it. But if we love our spouse in our heart, it'll influence the things we think about them and the things we do for them. It'll be done from a heart of love. And that's why salvation begins in the heart, not in our head and not in our hands, but in the heart. And it will influence those things. And that's what makes salvation very near to us because we can't earn it, but it's given as a free gift. And to receive a gift, all you have to do is receive it. It says here, the word of faith. What you preach is in your mouth and in your heart. So this is very important. This is how we receive righteousness by faith. It's not an act of works. It's an act of faith. And he says two things. That we receive righteousness from a human standpoint to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Meaning confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. We call him Lord a lot. Maybe we don't always think what that means. Because Lord means... Above everything. He is supreme and He is above all and He is God in your life and you are removing yourself from the throne of God of your life and letting Jesus be there because He is Lord and you are not. I am not. Jesus alone is Lord. This is, the title Lord was the title for God the Father from the Old Testament, the the Old Testament Adonai. Lord. And God the Father is Lord. Jesus is Lord. This is what they called Caesar in that day. That Caesar was Lord. So what He's saying is, Jesus being Lord has to come from your heart. You can't just intellectually think that because really what your heart says is, I'm Lord. I'm God of my life. I decide what I get to do. I decide if I'm righteous. But if we believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, then He is at the top of our life and He's also the foundation of our life. Everything we build our lives on is on Him. So Jesus encompasses all. He's the foundation and He is Lord. He's at the top. It doesn't mean that to be saved, we have to say out loud, Jesus is Lord, although that's evidence of it. It means confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. We need to pray it. We need to tell God if we want righteousness by faith, which is the only way to have it, we need to tell him, you are Lord, not me. I cannot do it. You are Lord. Be Lord of my life. That's confessing with your mouth, praying to him, and then you will confess it. Outwardly to other people. But that's not how you're saved. You're saved by telling God, you be God of my life. When it says in First Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is who turns us toward God. And the Holy Spirit works in people's lives before salvation because that's why people are drawn to Him. The Bible says we don't seek God on our own. And I can tell you in my life, I call myself an atheist for a long time but why was I continuing to seek God? Why was I listening to Christian radio? I would say so I could pick holes in their argument but why would I do that if I really didn't believe in it? And why would you be in a church hearing the gospel if you don't believe in God? If God is not somehow calling you to Him that's the Holy Spirit working. And if the Holy Spirit is in you, you can say that Jesus is Lord. You would not be drawn to Him unless the Holy Spirit is already working within you. So we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. Secondly, we believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead. Believe in our heart, God raised Him from the dead. This is central to our lives. It's not just intellectual belief. It's not I say that, but I really try to earn it with my hands. Believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead because this is the central element of christianity i think it's awesome it says this that we believe in our heart that god raised jesus from the dead why resurrection why focus on the resurrection why not if we believe that he died for our sins it says if we believe in our heart jesus was raised from the dead it's because if you believe that jesus resurrected from the dead it means you believe jesus defeated sin and death Because if Jesus never resurrects, he never defeated sin and death and we're still in our sins and the Bible says we'd be the most pathetic of all people to be worshiping a dead God. If you believe Jesus raised from the dead, you believe that right now he's in heaven ruling and reigning as Lord of all. If you believe that Jesus raised from the dead, then you believe Jesus came to the earth as God and he came to the earth to pay for our sins. If you believe that Jesus raised from the dead, that means you believe that Jesus died on a cross to pay for our sins. If you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, it means you believe that Jesus did not sin. So this is the central. If you believe this in your heart, that Jesus was raised from the dead, you believe all the rest. And that's why this is the central element of Christianity. Not that Jesus died necessarily, because dying without resurrection means we're still in our sins. But that Jesus dies to pay for our sins, and He resurrects to prove that it was acceptable to God, that we can be justified by grace through faith. Now, thankfully, I've been saying this whole time that belief is not in our head, but I'm a heady kind of guy. I like knowing the answers to questions. And this is, for me, very helpful, that Jesus' resurrection can be historically proven. So if we can base our faith on something that's historically proven, that makes it a lot easier to believe in our heart that this is true. Because there is historical evidence for this circumstantial case. It's not that, you know, anyone we could talk to now who saw Jesus, but circumstantially we can build the case to prove that Jesus did in fact resurrect from the dead. Because there is historical documentation. First, there is historical evidence that Jesus was a real man who was crucified under a person named Pontius Pilate. These are real historical figures that have been attested to outside of the Bible. They found inscriptions with Pontius Pilate's name. Jesus is in other books beside the Bible, Jewish history and Roman history, and people will try to discredit that, and people will try to discredit the Bible, but if you discredit the Bible, you kind of have to not believe anything about ancient history because the Bible is the most validated and verified ancient book that's ever been written. There's more manuscript evidence for it. So Jesus' crucifixion is a historical fact. And again, if you deny that, you have to deny a whole bunch of other ancient history. Also, there's no tomb. We don't know where Jesus' tomb is. There's guesses, but we don't know. I mean, you can go today to Buddha's tomb. You can go to Muhammad's tomb because they're dead. Their tombs were revered and enshrined. If you go to Jerusalem, we don't know exactly where Jesus' tomb was because he wasn't there for very long. Because he rose from the dead and there was no need to enshrine his tomb because it didn't hold him. He's not there. And his body was never found. I mean, if the Romans or the Jews wanted to disprove Christianity, which they did, produce a body, they would have had it. If the disciples had it, if Christians had it, that's a pretty big conspiracy theory to believe that they would all die for that, which is the next point, that the disciples historically completely changed after the resurrection. We see in the Bible before the resurrection, they don't get it. They're like us. But after that, all the disciples, except for possibly John, die a martyr's death. Why would, what was their motive at the time to do that? If not that Jesus really raised from the dead. And finally, Christianity explodes in that region of the world. All through it gets to Rome in less than a hundred years and Africa less than a hundred years after Jesus resurrects. People were there. If they wanted to discredit it, their people witnessed Jesus being there now any other explanation for these historical facts except that Jesus was raised from the dead is harder to believe Than that Jesus actually raised from the dead So this is historically verifiable that Jesus resurrected from the dead Which means we can believe in our hearts very easily that Jesus resurrected from the dead Which means we can believe all the other things Jesus claimed, which means we can confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord So I thank God that he made that so clear for us to see Now who is this for? Who can receive salvation by grace? Verses 11-13. through For the scripture says, whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone who believes in their heart, Jesus raised from the dead, confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. Anyone will be saved. It doesn't say anyone who's good enough and calls on the name of the Lord. Anyone who's cleaned up their life enough first and then calls on the name of the Lord. It says anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. As The Bible says that while we were sinners, Jesus died. Not after we changed things. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus does not deny mercy for anyone. Anyone can do this. Jesus will not reject you. But we might reject Jesus. Lots of people do. And that's the final point here. Verses 14 through 20 is the response to this. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. I'll stop right there a second. Now, these verses we can take out of context and use to support evangelism, which I think it does, but that's, I think, the secondary purpose. I mean, we can look at that and say, we need to preach the gospel. We can't just rely on people looking at us and saying, oh, there must be a Jesus. The gospel needs to be preached. But in context here, I don't think that's Paul's purpose. What he's saying is rhetorical, that, Let's work backwards through it. How shall they preach unless they are sent? Well, have people been sent to preach? Yes, they have. How shall they hear without a preacher? Are there preachers? Yes, they are, so people have heard. How shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? Well, they've heard of Him so people can believe in Him. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? So this puts the burden on people, human responsibility. God sovereignly elects by humans are responsible People have been sent. The gospel has been preached. People have heard the message. They just don't believe it. Or they don't want to believe it. They want to stumble over Jesus and pursue righteousness by works rather than by faith. this says in verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But the problem is not that the gospel hasn't been preached The problem is, people don't believe it. People don't want to. And Paul deals with two excuses. First of all, people who say they've never heard the gospel. Verse 18. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. So the objection here is Did Israel not hear the gospel? Have we not heard the gospel? Yes, we've heard the gospel. We live in America. We've heard the gospel. We're not in some far distant country. Even they've probably heard the gospel. We have heard the gospel. People have been sent. The message has been preached. We've heard it. But this is Jesus saying, you know, when Jesus says, Hearing you will hear and not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive, for the hearts of this people have grown dull. See, The problem is not that people haven't heard the gospel. It's a problem with the heart. And Rather than believing in our heart that Jesus raised from the dead, we harden our heart to that message and say, I can still earn it. I don't care about Jesus. I don't believe it. Which is the second thing. I don't understand the gospel or I don't believe the gospel, you could say. Verses 19 and 20. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. And so, he's dealing with the excuse... I, I don't understand the gospel or I don't believe in the gospel. And Paul here is quoting from the Old Testament to say that God was found by those not who weren't seeking Him. Like we read earlier at the end of 9 that those who were not pursuing righteousness have attained it. That God was found by those not seeking Him. You don't need every question answered to turn to Jesus. I'll tell you, I had tons of questions about Jesus before He called me and I turned to Him and He saved me. Were all those questions answered, before I did that. No, because belief doesn't start in the head, it starts in the heart. And there is answers to most questions you'll find out later. But answering there's no question you have that someone will adequately answer, and you say, Okay, now I believe. No belief is in the heart. And it's not blind faith. This isn't just saying, Okay, I believe in my heart, so I'll jump and do it. See, really all we need to understand to turn to God, to to accept the gospel, is to understand that we are sinners. We all, we, No one would deny that, that we've done evil and we have a sinful nature. No one, We need to understand that. We need to understand we're separated from God and under condemnation only Jesus reconciles us. Only Jesus provides forgiveness. That's all we need to understand. All these other questions of how old do Christians believe the earth is or all these other secondary things are not vital to salvation. All you need to understand is the gospel. You can get into all those other things later. But if that's your hesitation, it's not going to help. All you need to know is you're a sinner who needs a Savior, and His name is Jesus. He's the only one. No other religion even offers that. Every other one says you have to do it. How can you do it if you're the problem? So the problem is not we need more proof. The problem is not I need more answers. As we remember, people saw Jesus. People were witness to Jesus. He was a historical figure. People saw Him, but not everyone believed Him. And people saw Jesus performing miracles. They heard Jesus himself preaching the gospel. And not everyone believed him. It's not a problem of proof or answers or understanding. The problem is, again, our heart. As there's an account in the book of Luke, it's probably in the other Matthew Mark as well, where Jesus uh, expels a demon from somebody. And the purpose of, of the account is not that Jesus did the miracle. It focuses on the response of the crowd. And most people in the crowd had two responses. Some people said, oh, Jesus can only do this because he's doing it by the power of Satan. I'm paraphrasing. So in other words, they try to explain it away. And people do this, right? That Everybody, I guarantee you, even if you're not a believer, has had some point where you thought, maybe God is calling to me. Maybe God is showing me something. Everyone has that at some point. But then you can try to explain it away. You probably won't say it's Satan, but you say, oh, I was just at an emotional low. I was at the bottom of my life. I was just struggling. I was That was just an emotional thing. Or it was an emotional experience. I was at a crusade or a retreat, and I felt caught up in the emotion. So instead of saying God was working, we say, no, there's another explanation. This happens all the time. The other group of people in this account said, if Jesus, if you can do this, show us something else. Give us a real sign. And again, this happens all the time. People think Maybe God is doing something in their life. Maybe God is showing me something. Maybe I just saw a sign. But if God can show me one sign, why can't He show me another? If God can do this, why can't He do this? So the problem again is not proof or answers. It's there. The problem is our heart. And the problem really is sin. Because Jesus says, everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So the problem is we'd rather keep our deeds hidden, keep our evil hidden, and put on an outward zeal that we can earn our righteousness. We'd rather show that and think we've attained righteousness than reveal what's really in our heart to really admit, I can't do it and I need a Savior. It's because of sin. Because we don't want to give up the throne of our life. We don't want to give that to God. We want to be God. It's not about proof. It's not about answers. It's not about, I don't understand it. It's not, I've never heard it. It's sin. It's I don't want to turn. I want to be God. And it's a problem of the heart. And then conclusion, last verse in the chapter, verse 21. But to Israel, he says, All day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. All day long. God never stops. He never stops. He, he's not going to stop until the end of, of human history. God is stretching out his hands to a disobedient and contrary people. He's stretching out his hand to us. Because we cannot ascend to heaven and bring Christ down. We cannot descend to the abyss and bring Christ up. God is stretching out His hand to us because we can't reach Him. God is stretching out His hand not to those who are worthy because there are none. He's not stretching out His hand to those who are good enough because there is no one good enough. He's stretching out His hand to us, to a disobedient and contrary people, which we all are. He's stretching out His hand to us Because He loves us. Because He chose to come to the earth to pay the price for our sins because love starts there. The Bible says, it's not that we love God, but it's that God loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. God loved us, so He's stretching out His hand to us. He's stretching out His hands to people who make excuses. He's stretching out His hands to people who say, I don't understand the gospel. I need more proof. I'm not going to turn to Him. He's still all day long stretching out His hands to people He's stretching out His hands to people who think they don't need Him. He's stretching out His hands to people who think they can be good enough on their own terms. He's stretching out His hands to people who think they can set their own level of righteousness and say they need it. He's stretching out His hand to you. Stretching out His hand all day long to disobedient and contrary people. The problem is not God. The problem is us, that we stumble over the stumbling stone that is Jesus. We stumble because we're offended, because Jesus is the rock of offense. And rather than looking at why we're offended, because I am a sinner and it's true, we stumble over it. Even though God is stretching out His hand to us. He's stretching out His hand to disobedient and contrary people. So that we can confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. So we can believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead and we will be saved No matter what you do, no matter what you have done, it's a free gift open to everybody. Because whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will not be put to shame. So let's call upon the name of the Lord. Father, thank you for your free gift, your free gift of salvation through the work of your son, Jesus. God, thank you that you stretch out your hand to us, disobedient and contrary, arguing against you, fighting against you. You stretch your hand out all day long wanting people to come to you. And Father, I pray that you'd send the Holy Spirit to work in those who are listening or those who are here who do not know you, who are stumbling over you, Jesus, who are offended because of you, Jesus, and who are trying to attain their own righteousness. Lord God, show them that they can't do it. They can't attain their own righteousness. And Father, for those of us who are Christians, let empower us by the Holy Spirit to live by this identity that you have saved us. And that we can worship you and we can be connected to you and we are forgiven by you and we will have eternal life with you. And we thank you, Jesus, and we praise your name. Amen.
0: You've been listening to a live teaching from the River Christian Fellowship, home of CSN. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you can catch the free podcast by searching the iTunes store for the River Christian Fellowship. Or give us a call at 800-357-4226. There's also a video of today's teaching available on our website, theriverchristianfellowship.com, and then click the media button. Don't forget to catch the evening service at 7 p.m. Mountain Time, and tune in next week for more from the River Christian Fellowship, live on CSN.